Welcome to the Value Perspective podcast on decision-making. We're a group of value investors working together on the global value team here at Schroders. As investors, we have to tackle decision-making in uncertain environments every day. In this podcast series, we speak to people from other walks of life who also share the challenge of making decisions in complex and uncertain environments. We cover topics such as how to think in probabilities, tools for overcoming psychological biases, and how we can learn and improve decision-making in complex environments. We hope you enjoy it. This podcast is for investment professionals only. The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up, and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information is not an offer, solicitation, or recommendation to any of the funds, services, or products, or to adopt any investment strategy. The views and opinions contained herein are those of the individuals to whom they are attributed to. It may not necessarily represent views expressed or reflected in other Schroeder's communications, strategies, or funds. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to TVP, and welcome back to this week's guest, Steve Gorlick. Steve is the head of research and a portfolio manager at Firebird Value Fund a fund that specializes in investing in Russia and Eastern Europe. Back in September of 2022, Steve was our guest on an Eastern European special episode. As we reach the anniversary of the invasion, Steve has returned to the pod as part of a two-part series, and we will continue with next week's episode featuring well-known historian Simon Sebag Montefiore. Now in this episode, Steve has returned to chat with Juan about Firebird's decision to start investing in Russia in the very early 90s, just a few years after the fall of the USSR, which included buying companies for cents on the dollar why Firebird transitioned from the Benjamin Graham School of Value to Warren Buffett's, lessons learned looking back from the invasion of Russia into Ukraine, the impact previous crises in the region had on decision-making processes and the probabilities when faced by the invasion, the fact that there's nothing new under the sun and this is not the first time nor the last time that a market gets closed, and finally, how to transfer applications of investing in emerging markets to developed markets. Enjoy. Steve Gorelick. Welcome to the Value Perspective Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here. How are you, sir? I'm very well. Thank you for having me. Could you please give us a brief intro about yourself for those that don't know you or have never heard of Firebird before? Absolutely. And once again, thanks for taking the time and for creating such a wonderful podcast and giving me an opportunity to be a part of it. I am, uh, my name is Steve Gorelick. I am head of research and portfolio manager at Firebird Management. And Firebird Management is a fund out of New York that is best known for investing in Eastern Europe that it's been doing since 1994. And Eastern Europe includes obviously countries like Russia. But in our case, we were one of the first investors in many of the other countries within the region, places like the Baltic countries, um, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Romania, Bulgaria, Georgia, Kazakhstan. Uh, We were one of the first firms to invest into uh, most of these places. We have uh, fantastic relationships within those countries, have learned a lot over the years, but it's been been a really fulfilling uh, time. I've been with the firm for hard to believe, 16 years. Prior to that, I was uh, I went to business school I went and where I studied uh, applied value investing. And before that, it, I spent a few years as an operational strategy consultant. But by background, I'm originally from Belarus and but lived in the United States for most of my life. And where do we find you today? 
Today you find me in London. This was a family decision to move to London a couple of years ago, and it was an interesting time to move during COVID. Worked out in a lot of ways a lot better than I thought it would be. But from a business point of view, the interesting learning has been how many wonderful people are in London that are in uh, investing community and the number of people that invest all over the world, including Eastern Europe, but also the um, amount of communication that we could have with people in Eastern Europe has improved because I've been in London for the last couple of years. A big part of what we do is uh, traveling and meeting with companies and meeting with managements. And obviously that's been much more difficult over the last two to three years. Being able to communicate with companies from London, it's not the same as going to visit, but it's definitely better than speaking on the phone from New York. How does it work for the head of research of a fund to be based in London when most of, you will correct me if I'm wrong, but most of your team is still based in New York? Uh, it helps to have a great group of people to work with and a very experienced group of people. I think the youngest person on our team has been with us for, I think, seven or eight years. It's, it's been a long time, so it's kind of hard to remember. Oldest people are the founders who have been there since the beginning in 1994. So we are very comfortable with each other. The modern tools in terms of Teams and Zoom, et cetera, it's not the same as uh, meeting people in person, but it, does, it definitely gets you close enough uh, from the point of view of being able to communicate and to speak to each other every day and making sure that everybody knows what they're doing. We're missing the element of the spontaneous communication where we can come into each other's office and ideas develop. We try to recreate that through daily meetings, We still see each other, not as regularly as we did before, but we still do see each other. So it works out well. I can't say that that's the preferred way of doing it, but it definitely works. So we would like to start by exploring the mindset that is needed to invest in unknown markets where there is a higher degree of uncertainty than what you would find in more developed markets. And you just mentioned that Firebird was founded in the very early 1990s, and it was one of the first funds, at least American funds, to move into Russian equities and even Eastern European equities. So can you walk us through how that came to be, where the idea came from, and how did the, the fund think about the opportunities set back then and the risks that were involved? Right. And uh, I have to be first clear that I was not there in 1994 when the fund started, but I definitely heard quite a bit. Uh, but the opportunity within Russian voucher, within Russian equity investing, and within uh, came from the Russian voucher privatization, where the whole economy of Russia was valued on these pieces of paper. Which, for people who lived in Russia at the time, they were just pieces of paper. They were all of a sudden had value and had a piece of the economy associated with it. But altogether, these pieces of paper were valued at between six and $9 billion dollars for all of Russian industry and all of Russian national resources and everything that, that is there. So the opportunity that not a lot of people understood domestically, and that would include people like my parents, they did not know what that meant. But international investors that saw what's happening there, and that includes founders of Firebird, saw an opportunity to come in and to be able to uh, invest into these vouchers and then use them to buy shares in companies that are becoming privatized by the government. 
And that was the beginning of Firebird. That was the idea that uh, the founders had. They raised a reasonable amount of money, uh, both uh, internally and from outside investors. And uh, initially, that was supposed to be a trade where you buy these vouchers, you uh, exchange them into assets, and then you sell them. Once they got involved in Russia and also saw the opportunities elsewhere in the region, they realized that it could be more than just a short-term trade or medium-term trade and could, and could turn into a long-term investment destination because of the changes that they're starting to see emerge within Russia, because of the kind of the economy, how the economy has been developing. We got to see a little more about what is happening with these countries that uh, former republics of uh, countries that were used to be socialist countries that are now a little, you know, separated from the Russian influence and now more influenced by European Union and uh, how the economies are developing there and starting to invest into that. And that that was the reason why, why we as a firm went into places like the Baltic countries why we went into into Romania. And so the initial opportunity was there from a point of view of just buying assets at pennies on a dollar, uh, which is a very you know, traditional value. You know, <laughs> when we go back to the history of value investing, you go from Graham to Buffett, right? So we as a firm have also gone from Graham to Buffett. We started out buying a net net. So if you could try to figure out what the companies actually had, uh, but you were definitely not paying a lot for the wonderful natural resources that were there. And over time, the economy has developed and our investment process has developed in the way that to be more Buffett-like, where we would be buying fantastic businesses at more than reasonable prices. And that's really what our firm has evolved into today as the market has, has evolved. We, we evolved with it. Could you walk us a little bit through, like, what, who were the founders? How many were there at the beginning? What was their background? And also, how did they manage to convince investors and what kind of investors to go and invest some of their capital into this place called Russia, which only four years before was very, very scary and, un like, completely uninvestable? Uh, there was four founders in the beginning. Uh, two of them are still uh, involved with the firm and they're on a daily basis making investment decisions. And I am honored to be working with them side by side. Uh, but in the beginning, there was four people. Interestingly enough, they really did not have anything to do with Russia and Eastern Europe. Only one of them. So it's, three, it's four American persons, one of whom spoke Russian because he was a political analyst and a translator by training, but he learned Russian in college. One was a lawyer, another one was a professor, and they kind of, they saw the opportunity to uh, all together, they knew each other from past life, saw an opportunity, had some background with financials to be able to kind of put it all together and uh, decided to start a firm. And in terms of the initial investors, a lot of them were, funny enough, your value people have been around for a long time, especially the ones that were involved in arbitrage type strategies, because what they saw in terms of what our founders are doing 
they saw the opportunity that was very similar to risk arbitrage. And uh, that's where a lot of the initial investors were people who were interested in that. There was quite a few investors that came through Mark Faber's newsletter, Loom, Boom and Doom. So he was one of the early supporters of the firm and we got reasonable amount of exposure through that. But so that was the beginning. Hindsight can always or sometimes can be very dangerous. And especially for people that didn't live through a particular event, it's just difficult to grasp the uncertainty of the decisions that were made or the moment in time, or the context of what you were living through. So it's kind of easy to think about starting a fund, investing in a place like Russia and Eastern Europe in 1994. But that was or must have been a time of a lot of uncertainty. And, and just to put things into context about how this could have been, and I'm, I'm very interested in your thoughts. There's this very good letter written by Seth Klarman, who is a very well-known value investors, and he's well-known among value investors, but not really that well-known outside of value investors. Uh, at the end of the 1990s, when he was, he saw an opportunity to invest in, in emerging markets, and he was telling his investors in his letters that when value investing came about in the 1930s, a lot of the traits and characteristics that made value investing were present in emerging markets in the 1990s. So there was a lot of, there was less competition. Mm -hmm. uh, markets were more, uh, less efficient. There wasn't that much access to information. The accounting was difficult to understand. And the concept of value creation or management working to create value for shareholders was non-existent in the 1930s. That's only something that came about many decades afterwards in the U.S. And that's pretty much what you were finding in, in a place like Russia in 1990s. But you must have been very brave to go and invest your capital in Russia. So, yes and no. Because what, you, what you're doing when you're buying things at pennies on a dollar, you, I think you understand that you have a lot of room for error. You also understand that the people that you are that are trusting you with their money more likely than not are doing it with the amount of capital that they're able to put at into something really risky for really for what they expect to be a fantastic payoff. So you enter into the trade or into investment with those things in mind that you are operating in out there on the risk reward spectrum and you should be treating things accordingly one of the things that we are doing because we are operating within emerging markets and i know some firms do it differently but we run a relatively diversified portfolio so we would never feel comfortable running a portfolio of 10 stocks because no matter how well you know the company and how well you may, how good you may feel about a particular country, something may happen in emerging markets that would lead to all of those assumptions turned upside down. And if you're running a highly concentrated portfolio, it's very difficult for you to be, uh, you, know, you don't get a chance to try again. You don't get a chance to invest again. 
So we, what we do is we run a portfolio of our core portfolio is 30 to 40 stocks, which provides us enough diversification, but at the same time, enough concentrations within our best idea, best ideas. We think we thought that that's the best way forward. And also we've had as a result of doing, we've had some situations where things didn't work out as we planned, but it didn't hurt us in the long term. So that's one of the things that from point of view of how we're approaching invest uh, emerging markets, we try, we're focusing on diversification, both on a country level. So that's one of the reasons why we went into other countries within Eastern Europe is to provide that diversification, not to be a country fund, but to be a regional fund. But then also on the company level, we, as I already said, we don't feel comfortable having too large of a positions within the fund. So that helps. From the point of view of the inter- informational advantage, that's something that you touched on that I think, uh, access to information, not informational advantage. Uh, that's something that has changed over the years. And I would say it's for the better. Uh, when I started in the firm in 2005, one of the competitive advantages that I had is I could read and understand the Russian accounting standards financial st- uh, statement, which was 250 pages of gibberish, and of which maybe there's 10 to 12 pages of useful information that is not necessarily in the same format as you would expect if you're reading an IFRS financial statement or a GAAP financial statement. And that was my competitive advantage at the time. A few years ago, Russia has um, forced uh, all of the comp- companies, and that has happened in other markets earlier, to start reporting an IFRS. And so now everybody has the same information. The opportunity set didn't change because the people on the other side of the trade from you, if they're local, they're still operating with the same information that they did before. And if they're international, just because they, at least in our experience, just because you can read the financial statement in English or it's in IFRS, the format that you're more or less used to, does not mean that you're comfortable investing in the region because of all of the macro concerns that may or may not be true, or at least, but people do have preconceived notions when they are investing in certain places that is not their home market. People have preconceived notions about their home market too, but that's a different conversation. And when they do that, the information that you're getting about a particular company can only get you there, can only get you so far. There's famous stories about value investors going to buy in South Korean equities at 2P and 3P. They didn't make money because they were buying something at two, because they figured out something was trading at 2 or 3P. That was pretty obvious. It's because they took a chance on an opportunity and opportunity worked out a certain way. The markets that we're investing in, for the most part, are trading at mid single digit PEs. They've been, they've been happening before the conflict. And it's happening, definitely happening now. You don't need to know how to read the financial statement to understand that. But to get comfortable with what you're buying on the other side and why it makes sense and why the people are allocating capital in a way that you're comfortable with, that's a very different story. And that's kind of, that's been our, what we think is our value add, but that's what allows us to invest in the market that could be perceived as extremely volatile and extremely difficult to invest. Firebird was launched in 1994. And I guess like you you were explaining before with this amazing opportunities to buy very good assets at 
very low valuations. Those low valuations reflecting the uncertainty and the risk that the market participants were seeing in those assets. Then for years after that, in 1998, there is this massive scare, this crisis, which started in the Southeast Asia, which then moved on to Russia. And the Russian market just went down a lot. And uh, there was a flight of capital out of the country. And a lot of people were thinking about capital controls. And again, you found yourself in 1998 with valuations that were extremely, extremely low. And I guess the question is, how did Firebird manage to go through that period of uncertainty? If you know, because I know that you were not at Firebird back then, but if you heard the stories. And how did you keep your... How did you keep your guts and stomach to kind of pull through that period of volatility? You, I think you have to remain an optimist. In this business, you always have to remain an optimist. And then when you see the changes, uh, while they could be volatile, while they're happening, do you still see the country moving in the right direction? Do you see the people moving in the right direction? Think. At the time, what helped, and as you mentioned, I was not there, but I've heard some stories, but it does help to be in contact with the people on the ground and to see how people don't just have this deer in the headlights reaction to something, to an economic crisis, but how they're learning to navigate that. In my 16 years at the firm, unfortunately, we've been through a number of crises, and then I've seen that on my in my own experience. In the countries like the Baltics in 2008, when everybody was saying that the countries will devalue their currencies and they were going through a um, economic crisis, we took a view, an informed view that that is not going to happen. But what allowed us to do that and what allowed us to be right at the end was that we had a number of conversations with companies on the ground, with management to find out how they felt about devaluation, what they're doing to manage the financial crisis, what they're doing on day-to-day basis. This is my background as an operational strategy consultant helped ask the right questions in order to get to the level of comfort in terms of what is happening. And I think that's the lesson from any crisis that is going on is to try to see what the companies are doing while that crisis is happening because we invest in companies that one share that we own buys us a right, a a small ownership in a company. And that gives us an opportunity to go and talk to them and to discuss, discuss these things. So I think that's kind of, that's been the learning from the 98 crisis and from the every crisis after that, it's been to try to understand what people are doing on the ground. That's a great segue into my next question, which is, we recently had your friend Milo Jones on the podcast, and thank you very much for providing that introduction. It was fascinating. And he made a thought-provoking comment in that value investing was an Anglo-Saxon invention, which had worked very well in markets that had come out victorious of the Second World War. Among other things, he alluded to the rule of law as one of the most important variables underpinning the strategy. You guys are all investors and have specialized in investing in marine markets. Do you agree with Milo 
and what do you think has made you so successful at investing in these markets over 30 years applying a value philosophy? <laughs> Milo is a great person. The, his his comment on the rule of law was I, I heard the, I, I heard it from your podcast as well, and that gave me a lot of thought, uh, kind of rule, um, a lot of things to think about. The rule of law is important from a point of view of uh, investing of how our investment process. It may not be necessarily kind of what's the right way of putting it. What we're looking for is the consistent application of a set of rules that may not be the rule of law the way that it works within the Anglo-Saxons, Anglo-Saxon world. But as long as the application is consistent and you can count on it over time, you can get comfortable with it. And that's uh, one of the things that uh, we kind of we learned over the years within our business is that you we we found that we could invest in markets that have that are democratic and that are not too corrupt, because within those markets there is and rule of law has a lot to do with it. And then if there's a consistent rule of law, if there's ever a business dispute you could count on the application of rule of law and on the courts to defend that and uh, you'll be okay. And that's I, as a uh, partial owner of the business, but as a minority investor in the business, you have to count on that. As an alternative, a democratic market, a democratic country that is corrupt does not have a rule of law in a way that can be applied, that can be counted upon. And what actually happens every four years or six years, depending on the election cycle, there is a turnover in the people in power. But the first thing that they try to do after they come into power is not necessarily to grow the size of the pie of the economy, but to figure out how to recut it in their own favor. And within that, as a foreign investor, you are usually the odd person out. So that makes it a bit, uh, difficult place to invest. The alternative are the, would be the market that is autocratic. They may not have the rule of law. Uh, the country that is autocratic may not have the rule of law the way that you and I would understand it by experiencing the UK or US system. But at least there is a consistent application of a set of rules that are there. And oftentimes those rules are based, if you read the rules, if you read the laws, they're based on some of the best practices borrowed from the Anglo-Saxon system. It's just the question what happens when they get applied. And in an autocratic environment, when the same people have been in power for a long time, you can kind of get comfortable with how that they're going to be with how they're going to be applied time and time again while those same people are in power. Obviously, there's a risk of a changeover that is not the same in democratic regime. A lot of places that we invest in, like for example, in the Baltics, elections happen. You may have a change in power. It makes no difference from a point of view of the business environment, similar as it would be in the United States or in the United Kingdom for that matter. It, there's some changes, political changes, but the way that people run their business doesn't really change. In a place that has an autocratic regime, you can take Kazakhstan, you can take Russia. If there is a change in power, we would have to spend a lot of time analyzing what happened and what is going to happen next. And that's the risk that at that point, the status quo does change. 
So how does like a value investing mindset helps you to invest in these markets, which are not Anglo-Saxon and might not have been on the winning side of the of the of the Second World War, as per what Milo kind of mentioned in our episode? The way that what value investing mindset is to me, at least, <clears throat> is investing into companies' fundamentals and having the opinion and the belief that whatever the way that the companies are investing the money, expecting a certain three-year return, five-year return, ten-year return on their investment, you pick that they're doing it in a way that you can understand as a business owner and that you can support. And I don't think that's a Anglo, that aspect in particular is an Anglo-Saxon concept. Or it could be an Anglo-Saxon invention, I wish, I don't know. But it's not, there is no uh, ownership of the concept like that within Anglo-Saxon, uh, by the Anglo-Saxons. Because you have, you do have fantastic companies that make great investment decisions in Asia and Latin America. It's just, you ha- those are very different markets that we never invested in we never felt comfortable with on a macro basis. We just don't know what we know in Eastern Europe. Um, but from a point of view of return on invested capital, that's an international concept that that transcends the countries. So from that point of view, I think as a value investor, you can get comfortable. If you can get comfortable with everything else, you can get comfortable with investing in a country as long as the pie is growing. Right, and we invest in the countries where the pie is growing. The country in Eastern Europe, uh, the EU countries within Eastern Europe, like Romania and Bulgaria and the Baltic countries, they're growing. They have a natural growth rate because of the conversion with the broader European Union that is two to three percent higher on real GDP basis than Western Europe. That's been happening time and time again. So we're investing in places that have a natural growth rate that are very competitive. So the companies that are emerging from that have competitive advantages. And we try to back those, we invest into those. And they are operating in an environment where the market, the end market for them is doing well, is growing. So as long as that's the fact, as long as that's the case, we can invest. And the other thing from a point of view of this, how we're thinking about fundamental investing and value investing is that there's a kind of natural long-term horizon that that comes from investing as a business owner. And that's where, at least in Eastern Europe, I think you're getting a certain competitive advantage because many times the people on the other side of the trade from you don't have the same long-term investing horizon that you do. They could have as much information as you do about the company, could oftentimes have more, but they see a poor economic outlook over the next three to six months. Or they could see a, another recession coming. It could be 1998 crisis that we talked about earlier. And they're saying, you know what? I don't want to be here. I'm going to sell and go to cash. What we're looking at is not next six months, but next three years, next five years, next 10 years. We have companies in the portfolio that we own for over 20 years. And on those bases, you could agree on all of the facts with the, with the person on the other side of the trade. They will agree with you on every single fact and everything that's going on with the company, but you will make different investment decisions. And 
we are we think that that gives us a competitive advantage that's been a significant source of our returns that long-term investment horizon um <clears throat> there's something else that we discussed with milo on our episode and he was approaching it from a sociologist point of view and i think that there's something that we, we've touched upon with other guests and the question is you were born in, in uzbekistan and you were raised in the in the us do you think that that background being born in one of these markets coming from these markets having your family from these markets having friends that were born maybe live in these markets does that help you to understand the risks and see the context of those markets differently from someone that was born somewhere else? Uh, so I was born in Belarus and uh, oh, I got that completely wrong. It, it's fine. One of the other, one of the other Soviet republics. And <laughs> what I think that does, it makes me naturally more curious about the region. But I would say that the experience of my partners in Firebird, as I mentioned, for people that were not born in former Soviet Union, but were curious about the region, and they did remarkably well because they saw the opportunity and they were willing to take the time and to learn and to listen. A lot of what we do is listening and learning and understanding the environment in which you're operating in. You don't have to be from that region. You, you have to have an open mind. You have to understand that things are different. They're not going to be the same as where you're coming from, and you have to be comfortable with it. Don't put everybody into the framework that you grew up with. You should be okay. If you try to come in and kind of tell everybody how to run their business and lead their life because of how that's how it works in the United States, you're probably not going to do well. But you don't have to be from there. That's really interesting. We also had on the podcast another of your friends, Vitaly Katnelson, and he kindly walked us through two mental models he had been thinking recently, one being that of myopic circles, which I thought was really, really powerful and really good. And so you are very thoughtful. What sort of mental models are needed when you are investing in emerging markets, especially those that carry a risk premium and where uncertainty feels very high? So what we try to do is we try to kind of separate the markets that we invest in. And some, and some of it could have to do with the discussion that we just had in terms of the rule of law, is where you can count on consistent application year in and year out, or it depends on uh, people being in power. And we have different risk premia for different markets. Some markets for us are simply uninvestable because they don't have any rule of law at all that we can feel comfortable with. And that's fine. We just don't, don't touch them. We have plenty of things to invest in. But a market like Estonia will have a lower risk weighting for us or a lower threshold for an investment from an expected IRR perspective than a market like Kazakhstan because of the rule of law, because of the EU or not EU, and because of the structure of the economy. So we start our analysis top down. 
from a macro perspective and trying to understand the, the countries that we invest in. We, based on that analysis, assign a risk rating, risk rating to it. It's not a formula, but more of a kind of taking different things into account. What kind of return would we expect on investment in that country? And we go from there. And then if we can find high quality companies that we, be, we believe will provide us those type of returns, then they're candidates for the portfolio. But if they are, you know, if we can't find anything like that, then they're not. So we try to differentiate between the countries based on the rule of law. And that's the framework that you would, that you tend to apply to many of these different markets. Yeah, absolutely. So we, we will look and there's uh, the best thing that can happen to an investment uh, market in a country that you invest in is that the rule of law gets better or you think it gets better and you can go down on a risk curve from mm -hmm. somewhere really out there to something just just risky. And that creates a number of the opportunities. You see the changes in how people are investing. They may be going from they may be more comfortable with investment projects that have a 10 year payback than before they could only invest in projects that had a two year payback or three year payback. And that really narrows the type of projects that you can invest in and really narrows the, you know, what the, how the economy can grow. We've seen that, we think we've seen that positive change over the last decade with Romania, where after the, after the great financial crisis and the involvement from the European Union, they really tackled a lot of the structural problems that they had in terms of the rule of law and in terms of the corruption. And through that developed a better business environment. You could see in uh, growth numbers, uh, the GDP growth for Romania has accelerated within the last five to 10 years. And we think that's the consequence of an improvement in the rule of law. And if you can capture that, and invest into the country when it's still perceived to be really risky, but it's turn out, turning out not to be, you can generate some fantastic returns. We do change tracks a little bit here and ask you about something that we've discussed in the past, you and, you and, you and I. And is this the fact that about 10 years ago, you started a side project applying your framework to value investing in the US? which was completely different, you will correct me if I'm wrong, to the one, to the set of opportunities that you guys were seeing in Eastern Europe and Russia and where your experience lied as, in, as investors. So how is that different psychologically and emotionally from the process of investing in Eastern Europe? Psychologically and emotionally, we're still investing in companies. We felt comfortable. So we were looking to expand outside of Eastern Europe. And we did not feel comfortable going to other emerging markets like Latin America or Asia or Africa because we felt that we would not know what we know in Eastern Europe from a point of view of how those markets work. The knowledge that we have accumulated over 25 years, what is it, 28 years, by investing into those markets. We just felt that, you know, as Buffett says, the pat you would be the patsy on the table when you go in and if, if I would go in and invest in a country in, in Latin America, because I would not know what I know within Eastern Europe. 
So we did not feel comfortable expanding to other emerging markets at the time. That said, we felt that our fundamental approach that is that focuses on how companies make money and how companies spend money can be applied in other markets. And for us, United States was a natural place to do it because our offices in New York and everybody who works with the firm is US citizen and we're we're Americans. So we did a lot of investing as is PA in United States. So this was an opportunity to formalize that into something that uses our fundamental investment approach in a more structured manner. Back in 2012, when uh, I started looking at the opportunity set within the United States, even though there was a lot of conversation about, well, the market, we're only a few years after the great financial crisis, is the economy strong enough? And what's what's really happening to what environment are we operating in? When I looked at the portfolio of companies that I would be able to put together uh, from the point of view of the long-term business owner, the quality of the portfolios that we would, uh, quality of the companies that we would have in the portfolio, and the type of returns that that portfolio would be expected to generate, it seemed really attractive. In attractive enough to try with our own money. And when we started telling our friends and family and existing investors about this, they got excited about it too. And they said, you know what, this makes sense. We have money invested in the US anyway. So why don't we give you a portion of that money to invest with as well? So that's how that product and that fund came about. And right now, by doing this for the last almost 10 years, I think we became better investors, both as U.S. investors and as Eastern European investors, because you learn a lot more about the companies as an owner. And there's a lot of kind of lessons and things that you learn about one company that may may not have anything to do with an industry or a country that you're investing in elsewhere. But there's something that you can take those lessons and apply them to something else and maybe ask different questions when you are talking to the manager. So at the end, I mean, it's not the end, uh, that project uh, and that fund that's been running for, as I said, almost 10 years has been a wonderful opportunity for me to be a better investor. That's really, really interesting. The future is uncertain, but as Dominic Miel pointed out on this show as well, there is nothing new under the sun. Everything that happens in markets has already happened before. This is not the first time that a market such as Russia is closed to investors, nor is Russia the first market to be closed to investors. It has happened in the past, and it will not be the last. Well, that's a forecast, and I need to be a little bit careful with forecasting stuff. Having said that, given what has happened over the course of the last five months, what has been the main learning that you take away? and what you would have done different, if anything. So it's an it's very interesting way that you're phrasing this question, because in terms of nothing new under the sun, I would actually say it's a little bit of the opposite, that you have a situation where you may analyze things based on what happened in the past, but they may not happen the same way the, uh, in the future. And this is an opportunity to learn, but this is really an opportunity to make an analytical mistake as well. If we go to the 
um, situation with Russia, one thing we did not take into account and we did not think that was possible is this idea of the central bank reserves being frozen. Russian central bank reserves being frozen. That has not happened before. We learned something as a result of that. Russia has reacted in a way that it did. The freezing of the reserves happened for the reasons that it had. And kind of the combined, the, the station that we're finding ourselves in right now is in part because we analyzed the station based on the set of facts that existed before that. We looked at, at there, were, there were companies that were sanctioned before in Russia after 2014. What happened to those companies? What happened to the stock price of those companies? What happened to the business of those companies? We took those inputs into account in analyzing and trying to understand what could be the consequences if Russia does invade Ukraine. The real consequences turned out to be much worse. It's a much bigger invasion. Uh, the reaction is much worse. It's, it's horrible what's happening on the ground. But the way that the Western world reacted to this invasion was not something that we thought was possible based on the pre-existing facts. So think, in answering your questions, what is constant is that something will always change, right? But it's not this, and that you will have an opportunity to learn from what happened, hopefully, you'll have an opportunity to invest again. Hopefully you will get an opportunity to invest in Russian market again, which is not possible at the moment. But yes, Russian market has been closed before, but when it closed in 1917, it was closed for 75 years. And if you were an investor in 1917, you were wiped out. Like you did not have any assets, I don't think, that, have, that allowed you to maintain ownership throughout Soviet Union. So if you're finding yourself in a similar station right now, you're, that's just, you're not going to be working through that. We don't think we're in that situation. We do think that Russia will become investable again within our investing lifetime, but time will tell when that will happen and why it will happen. Really interesting. Steve, we're coming to an Antor session and we always ask our guests two signature questions. The first is a book recommendation, and it can be any book recommendation or more than one book, if you have uh, more than one uh, book to, to suggest to us. So the, since we're talking about Eastern Europe, what, the book that I read most recently, and that was I, I think it was also Milo's recommendation, that helps you, help me understand the thinking that is happening both within Russia and within Eastern Europe is the book called The Light That Failed by Ivan Krastev and Stefan Holmes. And it talks about the experience of people in Eastern Europe after the fall of the Soviet Union and kind of all of the good and the bad things that are happening with it and kind of the mentality of the things you gain and the things you lose. And I thought it was a really interesting study and gives you a lot of food for thought. Interesting. I don't think that that was uh, Milo's recommendation, but I, I, I could be wrong. The second question we have is, could you please share with us and our listeners 
an example of a bad outcome due to bad process and not bad luck. And it doesn't need to be invested related. And those are always diff very difficult to think about your mistakes where you realize, you go back and you're like, say, that was a mistake. I, I will keep it investing related. One of the things that I'm constantly fighting with myself is buying something just because it's cheap. And as an emerging market investor, you can make that mistake time and time again. You look at a company, it's trading at 2p, 0.1 price to book, you know, pick your measure. And like, come on, how can you lose money? <laughs> and it's not so much about not losing money, but about not making money in a better company in a station like this. There's an opportunity cost that we have to capital. And we have had, I've, I've made situations, I've made recommendations in the past to buy companies simply because they're cheap. And some of those made it into portfolio and that didn't work. And uh, I think over time, and when we talk about the evolution of value investing from Graham to, uh, from Graham to Buffett, the way that the market works right now is that if you buy something at a low multiple, you have to have a reason for why that multiple will change. And it's not going to be simply because it has to. No, it doesn't have to. You can have a company trading at 2 PE forever. And if the P is not, and if the earnings are not growing, you're not making any money. You're just not making any money. You may not be losing money, but you're not making money. And your investors want you to make money. <laughs> That's fantastic. Steve, thank you very much for coming to the Value Perspective podcast. Juan, thank you so much. This was wonderful.